0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hi, welcome to the podcast. We're back from a break with brand new episodes every month. My name's Phil, I'll be your host, and I have a question. What does genetics mean to you? Maybe you're like me, a newbie, someone who's heard of genes and DNA testing and genetic diseases, but someone who's not really sure how all the pieces fit together. So in this episode, all the newbies out there, let's hold up our hands, admit what we don't know, and let's fix that by going back to where it all started. This is a trip through time to meet a German monk called Gregor Mendel, who kickstarted a brand new type of science. And if you think you already know this story, well, you might just be surprised. I'm Phil Sansom, and this is Naked Genetics.
0: Gregor Mendel couldn't possibly have known the importance of his discovery.
2: He is the person whose ideas led to the founding of genetics.
3: If it hadn't been Mendel, it would have been someone That
1: name, Gregor Mendel, sometimes called the father of modern genetics, he's the key. I wanted to meet him, so I had to travel back to Central Europe in the mid-1800s, just with a little less physical travel and a lot less time travel. So instead, I went to talk to a plant scientist called Xander Jones. And where better to do that than a garden?
4: So we're in the Cambridge University Botanic Garden. Right now we're looking at a pea flower, much like the ones that Mendel would have been working with when he was studying
1: the rules of inheritance. They'd really look like that, because this is like a... Would you call this a blossom, and it's like covered in purple flowers?
4: Yeah, it wouldn't be exactly like this, because this is not a common pea that he would have been working with, but the flower shape is just like he would have seen.
1: You've got these weirdly shaped purple petals, one of which is like hooked around from underneath, and you're pulling them open like insect parts. And inside, there's all these yellow little protrusion, what looks like threads with yellow parts on the end.
4: And next to the yellow parts is one white part, and that's actually the female tip. These are all tiny. They're very small. So Mendel was a a monk in a monastery in what's now the Czech Republic. And he was interested in the rules of inheritance. So it was known that if two parents had certain traits, that the offspring were likely to have similar traits. But the... Going theory at the time was that the traits would simply blend. That's understandable because many traits do work like that. We often think of height like this. But Mendel had figured out that some traits didn't work like that and set out to study it in a more rigorous way. He originally wanted to work on mice, I've heard, but then his superior thought that might be a little too untoward to be controlling which mice were mating with which mice, so they settled on peas, which I think was a smart choice. How many of these did he have
1: in his monastery garden?
4: Hundreds, even thousands. He quantified many thousands of plants in terms of their traits. So he picked out seven traits that had this certain characteristic. So I'm showing you this flower here. Sometimes there'll be a a purple-flowered pea. Sometimes when you bred a purple flower with a white flower, you got only purple flowers. Weird. Really weird. And even weirder is in the next generation, all of a sudden white flowers would reappear. So there was a trait was sort of hidden. And he thought there was something about that that was interesting and important, and he was right. And so what he figured out was that if he took these yellow parts, the male parts, and he removed them before it self-pollinated.
1: Oh no, you're picking apart
4: the flower. Yeah. Oh boy, you've taken all the parts off. Well, that one I messed up. So that shows you how (laughs) how good he had to get at this kind of delicate operation. So I'll take another flower and I'll remove the, the male parts This is called emasculating. So now we have a flower that only has the female part, the stigma waiting for
1: it to be pollinated. And Mendel did this with his hands, like, thousands of times. He may have had more sophisticated tools like tweezers. But still, he had to have this level of care. Thousands and thousands of times. That's incredible. It's Mm -hmm. a labor of love, I'm sure. It seems so simple, but in theory, what you've just done is crossbreed one flower with another, right?
4: Right, and if you knew the traits of the parents, then you could track those traits into the next generations. So he didn't know anything about what the basis for those traits were, but he could see how the traits would come out in terms of the numbers in each generation. He had purple flowers that were true breeding and white flowers that were true breeding. He'd cross them. The next generation would be purple. After he selfed that generation, so the flowers that had the male parts and the female parts would do their own business, and then the next generation he would see white flowers again 25% of the time on average, and 75% of the time he would see purple flowers.
1: You've got a purple flower plant and a white flower plant. You breed them. You get the kids. They're all purple. The kids are all purple, but the kids breed with themselves, yeah. and the grandkids, you get for every one white, you get three purple. That's exactly right. Which isn't
4: so much information, but he was able to surmise quite a lot from that. That 3 to 1, it means that there are two factors in the middle generation that are sorting out either together, mixed, or separate.
1: Those are what we now call the two copies of each gene, right? Right. Do you think for him in his garden with his thousands of pea plants, over and over again putting one into the other, what do you think was going through his mind?
4: Actually, my hunch is that he knew he was onto something interesting and that he wanted to make a contribution, just like all of us do.
1: Even if Gregor Mendel did understand a little of the importance of what he was doing, it doesn't change the amount of effort he put into it. The man spent eight years picking apart thousands of tiny flower parts and then rubbing them onto specific other tiny flower parts and keeping meticulous records the whole time. That takes dedication. The story goes that he was ahead of his time in some way, a visionary genius unappreciated during his life. But if that's true, then where does someone like that actually come from? Genius surely can't spring from thin air. To learn more, I talked to historian Greg Raddick.
2: Mendel was born in 1822. His parents were not very well-to-do farmers, and it quickly became apparent that Johann, as he was called, was very gifted intellectually, marked out to do something special. So in 1843, Mendel enters the monastery and he went on to study the University of Vienna. So we sometimes have this picture of Mendel as the monk in the garden. And that's deeply misleading because he had about as good a scientific education as you could receive.
1: He goes back to the monastery with this fantastic training and decides he wants to undertake a study on plant hybrids, and what happens to traits like the colours of the flowers or the seeds?
2: And where Mendel went beyond his predecessors is that he spent uh, two years making sure that, for example, when he had a yellow-seeded pea, that its progeny only ever produced yellow-seeded peas. That is to say, it was true breeding. So purified his stocks, and then upon crossing, he counted. And again, this was a break with his predecessors. No one had ever done this, certainly not at the scale that Mendel did.
1: So this was one of his smart moves, taking these ideas about rigor from the physical sciences he learned at the University of Vienna and for the first time applying them to plant breeding. He kept records. He repeated experiments. He used controls.
2: He carried on these studies for about eight years and in 1865, he gave a couple of lectures to the Brune Natural Sciences Society about what he discovered. Brune itself is something like the Leeds or Manchester of Central Europe. It's a, an industrial powerhouse. Mendel's in this fantastic environment.
1: And his results are really well received. The crux is this pattern that Xander was talking about, that when you cross, say, a true breeding plant with yellow peas to one with green peas the kids are all yellow, and the grandkids are, on average, three yellow to one green.
2: And he called the yellow character the dominant character. By contrast, the green character, which disappeared in that first generation but then reappeared, he called the recessive character. So Mendel finds this new pattern, but he goes on then to explain it.
1: His theory is that when reproducing, a plant could only pass on either greenness or yellowness, but never a mixture of the two, what we now call his law of segregation. In his paper, he followed through the maths the probabilities of what would happen if his theory was true, and the maths showed exactly what his experiments found, a three-to-one ratio of yellow to green.
2: So a new pattern is discovered, and a new explanation is offered.
1: He even extends his theory to more complex ideas. What if you have two traits you're dealing with, three? Well, he found each trait is inherited independently of what's going on with the others, what we now call his law of independent assortment.
2: So it's altogether quite an amazing paper. And then Mendel is elected abbot of his monastery. At that point, his scientific studies more or less come to an end, and he gets used up in administration, which seems like a tragedy for science. But as far as we can tell, for Mendel... It seemed to have been quite a good move. He'd always had health problems of nervous breakdowns, we would call them now from time to time. All of that seems to go away when he becomes Abbott. And he dies in 1882, a respected member of the community and not especially well known. But then in 1900, quite suddenly, he goes from being pretty obscure to being someone that a lot of people are talking about.
1: This is when everything changes, the turn of the 20th century. This is when biologist William Bateson first coins the word genetics, the start of what becomes a whole new discipline of science. If Gregor Mendel really is the father of modern genetics, then around 1900 is when it was finally born, just overdue by a few decades. It's a confusing time, filled with hype about this new experimental biology. Here in Cambridge, where Naked Genetics is based... This was one place where that hype translated into cold, hard funding. Helen Curry is a historian of genetics here, and she took me out onto the streets to show me something. You've brought me out here to 44 Stories Way. Why are we here?
3: 44 Stories Way is the site of the first Department of Genetics at the University of Cambridge. And I think it's a really important place for stopping to think about what genetics was in the early part of the 20th century, because the reason the Department of Genetics was sited here was so that it could be nearby to the university's farm site.
1: So genetics, when it was first starting out, was really, really tied to agriculture.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely right. A lot of the early enthusiasm for Mendelian Ideas, Mendelian laws, had to do with the fact that it promised a kind of more scientific, more predictable approach to creating new kinds of crops and new kinds of agricultural animals. Around 1900, there were two different contexts that were operating in related ways but distinct from one another. One was an area of experimental evolution, and then there was also a a world of crop development. And what happened in 1900 was that three different researchers independently claimed to have come across the work of Gregor Mendel. Hugo de Vries, a Dutch botanist, Karl Corenz, who was a German botanist, and Erich von Tschermak, a Austrian agronomist. Think about that.
1: Three people independently discovered or rediscovered these principles of inheritance at the same time. Who should take the credit? Maybe the easiest thing is to point to a dead monk who'd already done the work and give him credit instead. No more conflict. Mendel becomes a legend. In any case, it's biologist William Bateson in Cambridge who becomes the real champion of this work. Bateson coins the word genetics and he starts spreading the good news of Gregor Mendel far and wide.
3: By 1912, he'd managed to convince enough people in Britain that resources were put forward to establish the first ever chair in genetics. And why
1: agriculture? Why was that the big thing that people were using this for?
3: At the end of the 19th century, when these changes in biological understanding were happening, there were also significant changes going on in agriculture. So the establishment of institutions, state institutions, governing agricultural production, also governing agricultural research, rising industrialization, you have changes in mechanization and farming. There's a whole lot of interest in making farming better. Why? In order to feed people, to feed armies, to drive economic growth.
1: Helen mentioned two contexts operating at this time, agriculture and experimental evolution. Well, there's actually a third context, one that thankfully isn't still around. That, along with some 21st century tech, is after the break.
0: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions.
5: Hi Katie, how are you? I'm pretty snug to be honest It's <laughs> quite cosy in here
0: The Naked Neuroscience podcast explores the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond It
6: does not mean that you need to be sophisticated on the instrument, you can just hack on the piano
0: well, So I can legitimately tell my friends to shut up because <laughs> I've just passed my drawing test. You have my blessing, yeah
2: do you want to know who you are? Can we actually understand how we think?
0: From lifting the lid on consciousness to remembering how to forget, join me, Katie Haler, each month as we make connections with scientists and spark up conversations on the latest neuroscience news. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com forward slash neuroscience or subscribe to Naked Neuroscience wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back. I'm Phil Sansom, and this is Naked Genetics. We're talking about the father of modern genetics, Gregor Mendel. When he was posthumously rediscovered around 1900, scientists were excited to put his laws to use, feeding millions by breeding the crops of tomorrow and understanding this tricky thing called evolution. But that's not all they wanted to use it for. And be warned, some of these next ideas are a little darker. I'm talking with historian Helen Curry. What about eugenics? What was going on there?
3: Eugenics is an extremely important context for also understanding what was going on around 1900. In the preceding decades, here in Britain, you'd had Francis Galton put forward ideas about the inheritance of kind of degenerate characteristics and the overall decline of the population. And an idea that there should be controlled breeding of humans, Mendelian genetics, just as it created these frameworks for understanding plant and animal improvement, also facilitated a set of ideas about what was needed to be accomplished for human improvement. If the underlying mechanisms of heredity were you know known to be the same across all living things, well yeah it shouldn 't be surprising that we would see people picking up these ideas and applying them similarly. I think what is sometimes surprising is how vigorously the eugenic agenda was adopted. Looking back, it in some cases seems unbelievable because the traits that people were interested in were things like feeble-mindedness, which was basically a catch-all category for anything that people thought was an undesirable characteristic and, as you might imagine, was uh, much more associated with class and race than it was with any sort of recognisable, consistent characteristic.
1: This eugenic agenda persisted well into the 60s in the US with the last of the sterilisation laws. It's a nasty and wrong application of a science that became ubiquitous and all of it built on the shoulders of the unsuspecting Gregor. And why should he have suspected this? The man is kind of this weird anachronism, a 19th century scientist doing experiments that look incredibly modern and that seemingly took decades to be understood and appreciated. Did he know that he was revolutionizing biology? There's an anecdote from a New Orleans flower dealer who visits Mendel and asks to see the work he's doing with his peas. Mendel obliges, and when asked how it works, says... It is just a little trick, but there is a long story connected with it, which it would take too long to tell. What did he mean? Is that story the same story that we tell about him today? Historian Greg Raddick had a great answer.
2: The question arises, what exactly was Mendel trying to do with his paper? A traditional way of looking at this question is to think of Mendel as basically trying to found what we call the science of genetics, to establish a new way of investigating heredity. Nothing like that was the case. He was interested in understanding hybrids. There were two kinds of hybrids. One was the kind where when you crossed variety A and variety B, you got a hybrid with an interesting character, let's call it C, And then when you let C self-fertilize, that interesting hybrid character stuck. It remained constant. Then there was the other kind of hybrid, where you crossed A and B, you got C. Then when you let C self-fertilize, the hybrid character broke up, and you got other things. We could call those variable hybrids. So two kinds of hybrids, as far as Mendel is concerned, the constant ones and the variable ones. In the famous paper... He is interested in variable hybrids. His question is, is there a law that governs the characters that appear after the hybrid generations? And if there is a law, what is that law? And if you take seriously Mendel's own way of understanding what he was doing, I think it throws some light on the pseudo-question of why it is that it took 34, 35 years for anybody to notice In Mendel's own eyes, as in the eyes of his contemporaries, he had done exceptionally classy work, and I mean really classy, mathematically classy, explanatorily classy, within a restricted domain, the scientific understanding of plant hybrids, the variable hybrids.
1: Some people say Mendel was not a Mendelian, and this is what they mean. He himself wasn't bothered with looking at heredity. If you look at history like this, the thing that changes over 30 years isn't that science gets up to his level. It's just that studying hybridization goes from being an end in and of itself to a means to investigate heredity and evolution. Today, genetics has reached heights he could barely have dreamed of. I visited top gene sequencing company Illumina to speak to one of their researchers, Ursula Arndt. She showed me round one of their labs. What's this one?
5: So this is an x your next can do one whole human genome in under 40 hours, which is pretty impressive.
1: How long did they take to do the first one ever?
5: 13 years, right? <laughs> so the first one, 13 years, something like, what, $3 billion? And this one, less than 40 hours, and you have your whole human genome.
1: How is that possible?
5: Honestly, it's just a lot more time has gone into research, into development. NovaSeq could do 24 human genomes in one run in 40 hours.
1: Here's how you use one of these incredible machines. You take a sample, smash it up, and separate out the DNA. You tag it so you know where each bit is, and you put it on a flow cell, a black tile that looks like a futuristic hard drive. Then you put it in the sequencer, it illuminates one DNA base at a time, and the computer records the sequence. Finally, the computer calculates how all the individual bits should fit back together, and voila! The whole gene sequence is right there. Gregor Mendel had spent eight years carefully crossbreeding peas. Imagine what he would say if he saw how you could learn every single gene in a pea in 40 hours.
5: He would have had his mind blown. We are still impressed. I'm still impressed every time I think about the technology and the technological advances and just seeing how far we've come in the past 10 to 15 years. If you look at what he did, he did 15 plants at a time. And then you had to wait for the next generation. And now, within a week, you could have the full data set of those 15 samples and could be sitting on your computer and analysing and comparing them.
1: Whew! This has been a long journey. What better way to sit back and reflect than with a nice drink? It's time for Gins and Genes, a brand new segment where I've assembled three genetics experts to ask them some of the burning questions that are left over.
6: Hi, I'm Patrick. I'm a researcher in rare diseases and a CEO of a startup company called Sano Genetics.
0: Hi, I'm Alexis. I'm a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Genetics at the University of Cambridge. I'm Eva, and I'm a PhD student at the Department of Zoology in Cambridge.
1: So welcome to the first ever Gins and genes here at the Cambridge Distillery. Will Lowe, who runs the distillery, is here to tell us what gin are we going to try? Well, we're going to start off with Cambridge Dry Gin. It's the flagship of
4: Cambridge Distillery. We have a unique method of distillation, which means we take each botanical individually and we distill them at different temperatures to preserve the freshness. Uh, So everything that's in this gin, the recipe originally, was actually grown in my own back garden.
1: Cheers, everyone. In this episode, we've been talking about Gregor Mendel, right? Gregor Mendel spent eight years rubbing bits of flowers onto each other is that at all like similar to the way genetics looks today?
0: We do in a way do similar things. We will pick a specific animal, mate it to another one, probably have to go through lots of different crossing just to try and get to a point where we can answer our questions thinking about it the life of someone who works with flies is so similar to those eight years of Mendel rubbing together bits of plants I mean we spend a lot of time moving flies around on these little plates that are infused with carbon dioxide so they fall asleep and don't just fly away and you move them around with a paintbrush and you sort them and so you collect the flies you want to then mate with other flies and it's a lot of choosing the right ones to mate with the other ones. It's just having it put in that way, I find. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Is it reductionist? It,
0: no, it, just, it's very, it really resonates, actually, with just, just because the, the life of a geneticist can look like, oh, I'm doing you know really fancy science, I'm going to use a fancy machine, I'm going to extract some DNA, I'm going to extract some of this and that. But also the life of a geneticist is looking at flies under a microscope and choosing the best boy and the best girl and putting them together in a tube.
1: Some people say that when it comes to the way that genetics gets taught, it always starts with Mendel. But some people say that teaching should, I don't know, be revamped because we know so much now about how the way your environment changes you. What do you guys think?
0: I strongly disagree. You have to start with the basics, and it can expand into more complicated things. But I think you would never start with calculus. You would teach... Basic arithmetic
3: first.
6: To your point, though, I would say sometimes it takes us a long time to unlearn these things. I worked on rare disorders in my PhD, which are often described as Mendelian, which means it's caused by a single gene or in some, you know, a single mutation in a single gene or two inherited variants. The thing that we're relearning now is that actually, even in some of the most clear cut mendelian cases where you have a single gene that's hit it's modified by your environment it's modified by other genetic variants and there are also cases where people have the mutation that you'd suspect would cause a disease but they don't have it so there's clearly other things going on and sometimes it takes us as scientists a long time to unlearn the many decades of you know this is how things work and then you have to occasionally revise your thinking to incorporate new knowledge but i i would still say i agree that if you start with it's really complicated genetics environment, it can be every gene, it can be one gene, then the kids are going to probably uh, just say, I'm, I'm out of here and I'll be watching YouTube instead.
0: Generally, I agree that we want to start kids off in a way that seems sort of relatable and understandable when it comes to genetics and kind of hype up the interest. And one way teachers try and do that often is to try and find specific things about the student. So, for example, everyone's heard of the eye colour, you know, brown eyes are dominant over blue, green are a bit weird. And I actually have one of my eyes is half brown. And I remember being in year seven in science and we learnt that, you know, brown eyes are dominant, blah, blah, blah. And I said to the teacher, what about me? Like, one of my eyes is half brown. And she said, oh, you're a mutant. (laughs) And I, you know, I quite liked that because I liked science. That was fine with me. But at the same time... It's also just really hugely inaccurate. So I think what Patrick's saying about uh, takes time to unlearn things is really valid. And actually, I was looking through some sort of myths of human genetics. So the one that really surprised me is that apparently some kids were taught that the direction that you cross your arms is dependent on your genetics. If you just cross your arms now, you guys. Okay, so Patrick has his right arm on top. Alexis, ooh. She has her left arm on top. Now, some kids were taught that if you put your right arm on top, that's a dominant trait, um, but if you put your left arm on top, that's a recessive trait, which is just, it's just incredibly wrong. you know. I mean, that kind of... It's unbelievably wrong. I was just so amazed. But it turns out that there is one really great example of something that really does follow the rules of Mendelian inheritance, and that is earwax. I know, I know, it's gross. And there are actually two types. And which type you have is really largely dependent on which geographical part of the world your ancestors came from. So if you're ancestrally from parts of Europe or from Africa or a few other places, then you likely have wet earwax, which means that it ranges from yellow to brown and it's wet. Now, if you are from most of Asia, in particular Southern Asia, then it's likely that you have dry earwax, which means that it's sort of greyish in colour and crumbly. I'd never heard of this before I saw this example. And it's actually really true that it's dependent on one base pair change from a G to an A. And whether you have a, if you have a G, you make wet, and if you have an A, you make dry. So in some ways, that's kind of like the best... It's a pure example that you could use to teach children if you wanted them to be playing with earwax in the classroom about this Mendelian inheritance, but I do think it's true that we need to be careful that we don't go around telling kids oh, how you cross your arms, what colour your eyes are, whether your earlobes are attached, whether you have a widow's peak, whether you have a hair whirl. I mean, the list is amazing, and that should probably be... We should pull back on that, I think.
1: Cheers! 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 Nice, <laughs> <laughs>
3: nice, yeah.
1: yeah. That's very good.
5: It's very refreshing.
1: That's all for this month's Naked Genetics. Thanks to Xander Jones, Greg Raddick, Helen Curry, and Ursula Arndt. The science lovers over at Cambridge Distillery hosted us for gins and genes. Our panel was Alexis Braun, Eva Higginbottom, and Patrick Short. Thanks also to Illumina for letting me look around. And look out for some more sequencing from them coming to the podcast very soon. Naked Genetics is a Naked Scientist podcast. Find us on NakedScientist.com genetics or on Twitter at Naked Genetics. If you've got a question for our Jins and Jeans panel, pop me an email over at philnakedscientist.com. At I'm Phil Sansom. Thanks for listening.